Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. How's your tomato garden doing? Now that it's summer, most of the early season tomato issues are falling by the wayside. Perhaps you have fewer aphids and whiteflies, we hope, and maybe less blossom end rot, also we hope. In its place, though, are a wide variety of other tomato troubles that emanate from our longer, hotter days. We're going to be doing some summertime tomato troubleshooting today. Also, we answer a listener's concern about crop rotation in a mixed planting of flowers and vegetables. Can those two peacefully coexist? Mm, perhaps. And the plant of the week? Naked ladies. Well, that's the unfortunate common name for the summer flowering bulb, the Amaryllis belladonna. But uh, they are beautiful in their bare state. It's all on episode 127 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. We're doing some tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore from Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, going through the litany of problems that might affect your tomatoes this summer. And you probably know that tomatoes do best in full sun, but too much sun can be a problem. Now there are some sun-related problems, especially oh, yeah. in warmer areas where your plants are getting pummeled by sun all day long. And yes, tomatoes are a full sun crop, yeah. but there is such a thing as too much sun, which can result in things like fruit cracking or cat facing or solar yellowing. Sun scald, is a sunburn is the simplest name to apply. And it is directly on the fruit in the case of the sun scald. It's, it's the fruit that's exposed to the western sky when it's 105 degrees. And some varieties are more susceptible than others only because some of them have better leaf canopy than others. I've never had sunburn on an ace tomato because the plant has got a nice dense canopy. It's a consistent problem on celebrity for me when I've grown that one because the plant is a relatively unvigorous plant that produces a lot of fruit. So a whole lot of that fruit is exposed to the direct afternoon sun. Uh, so there are varietal differences once again. And once you've grown a number of tomatoes, you'll find some of them are just leafier, more vigorous, shade themselves better. Champion does a very good job of shading itself and produces a very large amount of large fruit. And I mentioned celebrity by comparison. It's a chronic problem on that particular variety for me. So you could, if you want to grow a particular variety that's susceptible to sunburn on the fruit, figure out a way to shade it a little bit from the hot afternoon sun, uh, maybe rig up a, a little structure to the west of the plant and put some 50% shade cloth that you buy from a local garden center. Um, another option might just be to put them where there's a little natural shade, not too much, or just plant varieties that are more dense and leafy. And then you'll notice that, again, as with blossom end right, you'll notice varietal differences over time will lead you away from some varieties and towards others as you slowly build this collection of your favorite varieties that does well in your particular region. And it probably would help, too, to keep your pruning shears in their holster because uh, the more leaf uh, cover that it has, uh, less chance there is of sun-related problems. I would say... 
pruning tomatoes is almost never necessary. And I know that that causes some controversy when we say that, but uh, it has very little benefit. If you're taking foliage off and exposing fruit, you're definitely going to get that adverse effect of sunburn on the fruit itself. Um, it reduces yield overall when you prune tomatoes. The only reason I can think of that would be a possible benefit would be in areas where late blight is a real problem, pruning them to get more open habits so you get better air circulation, but that increases your risk of sunburn. So I would suggest that keeping pruning at an absolute minimum, unless there's some weird training technique you've adopted that absolutely requires it. Pruning is for people in Minnesota, where their season begins on Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day and ends on Labor Day. Uh, here we've got such a long season that uh, we can allow the fruit to set very late in the season. We don't have to prune the vines for size control, and we'll still get plenty of ripe fruit. There are some yellowing issues uh, with the leaves on with some diseases. In fact, if you buy a tomato plant, you may see letters next to the name of the tomato like V, F or N or yep. T or A for that matter. But uh, the V and the F are, are two uh, problems that can cause a plant to turn yellow, and that would be verticillium and fusarium. Yeah, those are two problems in our area where we have, uh, these are soil-borne diseases, so they may be in your area if your homes were built on old agricultural soil, or if you bring in soil, uh, inadvertently bringing in the disease with it. One of the reasons I've always concerned about people getting um, tomato plants from their fellow backyard gardeners who started the seeds themselves, a lot of home gardeners like to use dirt use uh, compost from their own yard as they as they grow them unfortunately that can be a source of contamination into your yard so it'd be best if all the gardeners out there who are sharing transplants use packaged soils rather than homemade garden soils. If you get them, it's a real problem. Verticillium and fusarium are very challenging to eliminate, um, impossible basically to eliminate. And even the rotation practices that we all recommend, that special three-year rotation of only nightshade plants in this area and then no nightshade plants in this area, nightshade family is what I'm referring to. Even that's only marginally effective. So your best bet, if you have a problem with verticillium, fusarium or nematodes is to look for that VFN on the label. New hybrids, modern hybrids that have verticillium, fusarium, and nematode tolerance uh, built into them. Champion is a good example, but there's a lot of others out there. And uh, that's that's why you see that on the labels. And, and East Coast gardeners are now seeing more and more varieties with late blight resistance, which is a nice kind of new wrinkle in the breeding direction. And the letters T and A uh, refer to a, a tobacco mosaic virus and yep. alternaria. Yep. And uh, the, as far as tobacco mosaic virus, don't smoke around your plants. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that one's easy. I've actually never seen a case of TM tobacco mosaic in my career. So I gather that's more of a greenhouse operation concern. But uh, those those resistances that are built into the hybrids are a distinct advantage. This is why when we're talking on your program early in the season about going and selecting your tomato varieties, we we both kind of push, get at least a few hybrids in there. You know, they're, they're going to have this resistance bred into them. And I know people love heirloom tomatoes and all, but they don't have that resistance built into them. So diversifying the number of varieties and the types of varieties you're planting can be really important. And one more uh, problem that may affect your uh, tomatoes where the lower leaves and stems look kind of bronze or oily brown color, the leaves dry up and drop, that could be russet mites. That's an interesting one. I've seen it several times, and it's really hard to diagnose from someone's description because they think it just looks like a watering problem. You know, the plant looks like it needs it, not wilting, but like it's sort of drying out from the ground up. I happened to have that problem very early on when I was a gardener here in the valley, so I got it identified. And it, it yes, it looks like it's browning slowly 
from the ground up the vine. The vine keeps growing with reasonable vigor, keeps flowering, keeps setting, but just sort of steadily declines as the season goes along. Uh, it can be a tough one. Oil sprays can be very helpful early in the season. If you've had it one year, you might wish to spray for it the next. The thing, though, is to get it properly diagnosed because it takes a 40-power hand lens to see those little mites. And uh, most nurseries and honestly, most master gardeners aren't going to recognize that problem. It's not something they encounter very often. So uh, take some pictures of the plant, uh, get real close with a, with a hand lens and look at the leaf. You might see the russet mite on there. If you have a problem one year, get rid of all the tomato foliage, all the debris at the end of the season. Don't compost it. Send it away. Send it off to the landfill and um, watch your plants carefully the next year or perhaps give them a preventive spray with a light oil as they're beginning to grow. Because it can be a frustrating problem when you get it. By the time you figure out what it is, it might be a little late to do anything about it. Is there any truth to the old adage, uh, avoid planting tomatoes near petunias and potatoes to avoid russet mites? Not that I know of. I think petunias look lovely with tomatoes. We've been doing some tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. Don, thanks for the tomato tips. All right. Always great to talk to you, Fred. We're glad to have Smart Pots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Hi, I have a question. Um, again, Jennifer in Woodland, California. I've been listening to your show, and I remember one of the earlier episodes, um, there was someone on your show talking about how planting um, in your vegetable garden, mixing plants, so it's not just one full row of tomatoes, one full row of lettuce, but mixing plants in together is a great way for um, to mitigate pest issues. Um, but then recently on your show, you were talking about um, crop rotation. So I'm trying to think of how we're going to start planting our fall garden. And I was planning on trying some of those methods of, of interplanting, but now with this concept of crop rotation, is it possible to do both? How do we, how do you figure out rotating crops when, you know, you don't have just one bed that is all tomatoes, you have a bed that is mixed how can you plan for crop rotation with that concept in mind? So I'm very curious if you have any, um, any options with something like that. Um, thanks so much, Fred. Jennifer, that's a darn fine question. And yes, we have been talking about uh, crop rotation a lot lately, both in food crops and also on other plants you may put in your garden. Then to complicate matters, back on episode 118, we were talking with Kim Ironman, who wrote the book, The Pollinator Victory Garden, who talked about the benefits of mixing up your plantings in order to attract uh, the beneficials, pollinators, and uh, the beneficial insects as well. So, yeah, there, there can be some confusion. Debbie Flower is here to unravel the confusion and uh, 
how the heck do we do this now? <laughs> well, yeah, the water's pretty muddy on this topic. And there are people who advocate and practice the mixing up of the vegetable crops in the bed to uh, sometimes it's called companion planting. Uh, sometimes it's called it's, uh, uh, I believe, a uh, people who practice what they call permaculture do use this. Uh, but it's it makes, as you have figured out, it makes management of the garden very difficult. And so I favor actually planting one bed with all the tomatoes, all the tomatoes I want all in one place. And then moving those tomatoes the next summer season to a different bed. And of course, it's not just tomatoes. In that case, it's tomatoes and potatoes, eggplant, pepper. If you go tobacco, they're all in the same family. So we have to rotate crops in the vegetable garden based on the family in which they belong. And so it's, it is much easier, as you have figured out, to have all the tomatoes in one bed and then all the lettuce in a different bed and all the beans in another bed. And then you rotate. And Fred has a great circular... <laughs> Uh, picture yes. of crop rotation. The pizza pie. The pizza pie crop rotation. <laughs> of course, you don't have to have a round garden and do it in pizza pies. You can have separate beds and do yeah. it that way. But it shows you a, a good, uh, gives you a good template on what should crop should follow what. And some of that's done to for nutrition, which is fairly easy for us to control. For instance, corn needs uh, it's what we call a heavy feeder. It's a grass, and like a lawn, it, it needs more nitrogen than other crops to produce uh, its ears that we love to eat. So a heavy feeder then you would fall it would be planted after something that is uh, less of a heavy feeder like a bean. So beans uh, are in the leguminaceae family. They what's, do what's called fixed nitrogen. They have a relationship with a bacteria that is able to actually collect nitrogen out of the air. And the air is our number one source of nitrogen on Earth. So pick that nitrogen out of the air and put it in uh, nodules on the root of the plant. Now, we grow those beans on to have flowers and fruit, and that takes a lot of that nitrogen out of those uh, nodules. So it doesn't necessarily increase the nitrogen in the bed for the corn for the next year, but it doesn't deplete the nitrogen as much as another crop might. So we set up this rotation for reason. You don't have to understand all the reasons, but we set the crops up for rotation uh, in a certain order for certain reasons. So for the vegetable garden, I believe it's easier to maintain if we plant one bed with all the plants in one family and then rotate. It makes it much easier to rotate it after that. I think you can line those beds. Uh, you, you could have single crops as your main crop in each bed, but why not line the beds with some sort of uh, beneficial attracting perennial like alyssum or uh, California buckwheat or any number of uh, plants that attract beneficials. And that can be a, a permanent low-growing crop, if you will. Yes, it can. Or you can have a hedgerow. That's a term. Yep. Another term for it. Uh, somewhere on the property where you have those all of those planted and kept together. I think the, the number one thing to think about is maintenance. Uh, Alyssum is really easy to maintain. Uh, and if you step on it, oops, but it's not going to be a big problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, uh, if you had a bed and in a place where you're going to walk something that's more permanent, at, like a, an areogonum, a buckwheat, then it might get in the way of your harvesting mm -hmm. or you're tending the soil. So, But if it were behind it and you never went there, you just worked the garden from the front, perfect. 
All right. Yeah, there's plenty of options, by the way, for more information about that uh, pizza pie garden. Uh, visit the Farmer Fred Rant blog page and look for crop rotation for the home garden. I'll have a link to it in today's show notes if you want to build a big pizza pie in your backyard. And if you want to visit it, a website called southernexposure.com, and they listed, uh, and, in, and I'm sure it's at many other places on the Internet as well, they listed the traditional summer vegetable crops and winter vegetable crops and the family to which they belong. And so if you're interested in digging into this a little more, that's what you want to look into, the families to which your vegetables belong, and that's how you're going to do your rotation. SouthernExposure.com is the home for Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, one of my favorite seed companies. Uh, if you're uh, looking out the window right now, like Debbie Flower is doing, you can see popcorn growing. I do see. That's where my popcorn seed came from. It's a heirloom popcorn called Pennsylvania Butter Flavor 1886. Ooh, sounds good. I hope so. We'll find <laughs> out in a few months. We'll see how it does growing in barrels. But there is corn. Yes, sir. You've got ears forming. I see the tassels and they're opening. Yeah. Yeah. I have ears. Corn has to be in a patch. Can't be in a row. Has to be in a patch because it's pollinated by wind. I'm hoping it can also be in a circle. (laughs) I think a a circle's a patch. Okay. All right. Yeah. And there's two patches there. So, Jennifer, I hope that uh, clears up any confusion about crop rotation. Thanks for giving us a call. And Debbie Flower, thanks for your help. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Fred. you have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees, well, maybe you better think again, because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great-tasting fruits, peaches, apples, pluots, and a lot more in small areas. You could even grow them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture, and you can get step-by-step information via the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. And that's where you're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. So start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you're going to find more information about how to get in touch with us. You can leave an audio question without making a phone call. You do it via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash gardenbasics. It's easy. Give it a try. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and review section. You can text us questions and pictures or leave us your question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. And please tell us where you're from because that'll help us greatly accurately answer your garden questions. Because after all, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets. That includes Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, you'll find a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. Every week, we like to talk with Warren Roberts out at the UC Davis Arboretum. He is their superintendent emeritus, always has a beautiful plant of the week for us. And... There is this one plant that is is fairly common uh, here in northern and central California. It could be very common where you are. And when you first see it, 
you're seeing flowers on a bare stem and it has the very accurate name of naked lady warren roberts warren roberts would know about that yes that's a common common name in english naked ladies uh sometimes people with a little bit more Oh, I should put it to class more nervous. <laughs> well, we're a little bit more nervous about that. I think call it pink ladies. Oh, okay. <laughs> on that as well. <laughs> At any rate, it's the amaryllis. It's the true amaryllis. And there's just one species and pretty much just one color. If you have amaryllis, like the kind that bloomed uh, in, in the fall, in the uh, early fall, you, you have the true amaryllis, which is native to South Africa. With the discovery of South Africa by Europeans, it was uh, widely distributed. And it was even brought into California when California was part of the Spanish Empire and used to plant around the pear trees that were grown mainly to produce uh, pear brandy for the Franciscan priests and brothers out in this far-flung part of the Spanish Empire. The reason for it was that it, the roots are so poisonous that they discourage gophers. Mm. Also, it was it would produce uh, flowers during a time of year when there wasn't much room for for the religious uh, services to put on the altar and what have you. And it's called belladonna because the in, in medicinal at times when vegetable medicine was important, plant medicine, the little uh, seeds. Well, they're not so little. They look like pearls. In, in the when the flower uh, starts producing its seed, and the sap could be put into the eye to dilate pupils, which may meant <laughs> that the person doing that uh, was whether or not she was interested in the person that that was um, uh, pursuing her. It would look like she was more enamored. In other words, the dilated pupils. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's one of the stories of the belladonna. Yeah, there are a number of nice sort of sweetly risque pieces of information about this plant. There are hybrids with related genera from South Africa, especially the genus Cybistides, and those produce very, very similar looking plants, but that have more colored variety. If you see white ones or if you see ones that are dark pink or almost red, uh, the naked ladies, then there's been some uh, hybridizing going on. Typically, the hybrids uh, will, will be found in former Portuguese uh, farmsteads. When Portuguese immigrants came in from the Azores, they often brought this plant with them, but there was the hybrid. And uh, the pale pink uh, form, which is the, the species itself, uh, is very nice, but these uh, brighter colors were particularly, I think, particularly attractive. Now, there was a, a Mr. Hannibal in Citrus Heights near Sacramento who made these hybrids, and I think that they're, the flower, he's passed away, I believe, but I think the flowers still persist in his former garden. Beautiful, beautiful plant. This is not to be confused with the amaryllis uh, that is uh, used for um, forcing in, in winter uh, with the big red flowers or white or striped ones. This is a, this is the hippie astrum, and the hippie astrum uh, looks like an amaryllis, and it's in the same family, but it's actually from the Andes. There's been a lot of uh, confusion about that that continues, <laughs> but very, very different plants. 
I think you could grow this plant all along Interstate 10 and Interstate 8 from coast to coast in the, in the Sun Belt there. And I guess if you live in a slightly colder region, if you give it a protected southern exposure, uh, that might help it out. Yes, and, and it can be grown in areas where the, where the ground typically freezes if you mulch heavily and just to keep the ground from freezing. So it, you, you, see, you see it growing in areas we wouldn't think it would survive. And it also has a lovely fragrance. That's one of the nice things about it. During the growing season, it's a lush mound of big strap-shaped leaves, a dark, rich green. And as soon as the weather uh, changes in summertime, all those leaves die, and then the ground is bare for several months until uh, August when they, uh, the stems start poking out of the ground, no leaves at all, and then produce the flowers. It's easy to grow, and it, it's its own... <laughs> It, it doesn't, you don't have to worry about uh, critters eating it because it's poisonous to uh, gophers and such. And by the way, kids, don't stick it in your eye. Thank you. No, <laughs> no that's, that hasn't been, that particular application for this plant hasn't been done. Sure. We don't want it to no. start again. <laughs> no, it is poisonous, folks. Yeah. <laughs> If you want to show that you're interested in the person who is talking to you instead of sticking a plant in your eye, just look up from your phone for a minute or two. <laughs> yes. Uh, do what comes naturally. Yes. All right. There we go. The Amaryllis belladonna, also known as the Naked Lady, the plant of the week. Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. Find out more about the Arboretum, a fabulous place to visit if you're going to be traveling this summer and you're coming to Northern California, if you're going to San Francisco or Sacramento. Guess which is halfway in between? Davis. You can visit. Great Davis. place to stop and, and, and smell the roses, literally. And, and smell the amaryllis. We even <laughs> have an area in the Arboretum, a, a, a slopey, sandy area which is planted to dozens, dozens of these amaryllis, and we call it our nude beach. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we found out a lot, probably more than we really wanted to learn about the naked lady, the amaryllis belladonna, here on the Plant of the Week segment of Garden Basics. Warren Roberts, thanks for all that great info. You're welcome, Fred. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.